I've got some uh, big questions for you this morning. Multiple questions. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus, why do you follow him when, say, your neighbor doesn't? How do you explain that? What, what makes the difference? Why you and not them? That's a good question for you to ponder, I think. Question number two, big questions. Are you confident that you will continue to follow Jesus until the end of your days? And if so, why? What do you you base that confidence on? Big question number three, this last one. Plenty for us to ponder. What did Jesus' death on the cross actually do? I'll make this one easier for you. I'll make it multiple choice. Did Jesus' death on the cross, A, make salvation possible for any who might believe, or B, did it accomplish and secure salvation for a specific group of people? Did Jesus' death on the cross make salvation possible, or did it accomplish and secure salvation? Those are huge questions. If you heard last week's sermon, you know that I gave a tease for what we were getting into this week. Our study of John's gospel keeps giving us opportunities to consider deep theological truths. Last week's verses, again, begin to scratch the surface just a little bit of some of these. This week's verses will go even Deeper, And I'm sure that when I even say the word theology, some of you groan, right? If, if not outwardly, at least inwardly. It's like, oh no, not that. How very dry and boring. It's probably going to be over my head. I don't have a theology. I just believe in Jesus and I read my Bible and I do the best that I know. If that's you, that's simply not true. Everyone, whether you realize it, whether you admit it, you have a theology. You have a set of beliefs that has a huge impact on your life. Pastor years ago used to frequently say, Theology drives life. Whether you actively think about it or not, it shapes how you live, what you believe about God. That's theology proper, right? Theos for God, Logos for word, a word about God. Theology proper, what you believe about God. If you believe he's a cosmic killjoy and he's just trying to stamp out every bit of fun that you could possibly have, that affects how you live your life. If, on the other hand, you think that he's some 
benevolent, senile, grandfatherly figure. That affects how you live your life if you think he's Santa Claus. If you think he's a vending machine and by your behavior and your prayers you can punch the right buttons and get the right stuff from him, that affects how you live your life. Is he holy? Is he good? Is he loving? Is he just? Is he some of those things? Is he all of those things? The conclusions that you reach there determine how you live. Now, there are other aspects of of our theologies that we have other than just who God is and what he's like. There's there's ecclesiology. It's what we believe about the church. There, There is soteriology. There's your 25 cent word for today. What we believe about salvation. How salvation works. That's actually what Jesus is getting us into today with with the content of his great prayer that we began last week in chapter 17. He's getting us to think about what we believe about salvation and how it works. This, This great prayer has three parts. We looked at part one last week where Jesus briefly prays for himself. This week we're getting into part two of this prayer where he's praying for his disciples and uh, later we'll get to part three where he's, he's praying for us essentially. He's praying for believers who would come after the disciples. Uh, He's praying for the church. Uh, And here we are. It's as we continue to dig into this prayer this morning that we find that Jesus is very intentionally drawing us in to thinking about deep theology. He makes some very pointed, purposeful comments. He didn't have to make those. He didn't have to take us down this path. If you think that I'm stirring the pot this morning, it's not me, it's Jesus. He did this. I hope that as we get into this, we'll see again... Or maybe for the first time that theology isn't some dry academic pursuit. It's not a matter of trivia. It's actually very important and useful. Your assurance depends on this. Your confidence, your hope depend on it. Ultimately, your joy depends on it. Let's read these verses. Stand if you're able. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. These are the very words of God. Jesus praying says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed That you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost 
except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. In truth, may God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, great triune God, one God in three persons, we seek your help now. Would you uncover our eyes, illumine our minds, unstop our ears, and make our hearts soft and pliable, that we may receive your word, that we might be like the Bereans that Paul ministered to, who were of noble character because they received Paul's message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. May we examine the scriptures this morning to see if what I proclaim from your word is true. Holy Spirit, would you sift my words? Would you allow only to remain what is in line and in accord your holy word, this great and glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray for this help. Amen. Please be seated. Who's on your prayer list right now? Who are you regularly praying for? I recently joined a cohort, uh, a group of nine other pastors. We're all over the country from Philadelphia to Phoenix and everywhere in between. We're, of course, meeting online. We're in this cohort together because we all have a desire to experience a deeper prayer life, both personally and as pastors. Uh, It's ten different pastors, so we're all praying for different churches, for different people, for different families. I'm not praying for the guy's flock in Phoenix. I'm not praying for the guy in Philly's wife and kids. I'm praying for you guys. I'm praying for my flock. I'm praying for my wife and kids. Right? They belong to me. They're, they're mine. That's who I'm praying for. When we read in these verses who Jesus is praying for, 
And when we read in these verses who Jesus is not praying for, that might be a little startling at first. But maybe it shouldn't be. Verse 9, he very clearly says, I am not praying for the world. Well, Jesus, that seems kind of mean. What's up with that? Well, come to find out as we dig in further, it's more than just praying that Jesus isn't doing for the world. Let's start at the beginning, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now, we've clearly seen in this gospel that one of the reasons why Jesus came, why the Son of God took on flesh, why he left his glory in heaven, why he humbled himself, he did that to reveal the Father. He did that to make the Father known. He says, I have manifested your name. Now, we know that the name of someone represents, refers to the whole of that person, uh, their character, their attributes, their reputation, their actions. So Jesus has been tasked with and claims to have carried out the assignment of revealing the Father, making him manifest, making him obvious and plain, that, uh, that specific word in the Bible there for manifest it is, has specifically to do with divine revelation. Right? Jesus has divinely revealed the Father. But not everyone has found that revelation so obvious or clear. We've seen in this gospel a lot of disbelief. And only a little bit of belief by comparison. Why is that? Why is it that your neighbor does not follow Jesus while you do? Why is it that what seems so obvious to you does not seem obvious at all to them? If Jesus is surrounded by unbelief, Is his work of revealing the Father somehow defective? No, it is not a defective work, but it apparently is a very specific work directed at a particular audience. Look again at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. His manifesting, his work was done to and for a specific group of people. Those that the Father gave the Son out of the world. Now that's noteworthy. What is also noteworthy is that Jesus' work, his manifesting, his revealing to that group was effective. Completely effective. Uh, This group, given to the Son by the Father, at the end of verse 6, it says, they have kept your word. What does that mean exactly? We don't have to wonder. Jesus elaborates and tells us in verses 7 and 8 what keeping his word 
looks like. He says, now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. So so Jesus has delivered the Father's message, the, the good news of the gospel itself. He's been very clear about the fact that he's not speaking on his own. He said it over and over. He's only saying what the Father has given him to say. He's not speaking on his own authority, but only on the authority of the one who sent him. He says this over and over. I gave them the words you gave me. He goes on, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So so this group that Jesus revealed the Father to, delivered the Father's message to, they received it, they believed it. And it it doesn't mention any exceptions. It, It doesn't say some received it. It doesn't say many believed it. It says, the people you gave me They received it. They believed. These are the ones, verse 9, who Jesus is praying for. And not everybody else. Not the rest of the world. So we would do well to look a bit at who this group is. Who these people are that the Father has given To the Son, this group for whom the Son's work of revealing and delivering the message is so very effective. The first thing to see here is that this is not something new. This isn't a recent development. It's something that's already been in the works. Look again at verse 6. The people you gave me out of the world, yours they were. The Lord has a people. He has had a people. This reaches into the past. They are a people of his own choosing. Even in the Old Testament we see this. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. This specific group of people, the Lord's people, have been chosen out of the world, not because they were somehow worthy of being chosen, but just simply because the Lord decided to. Not according to merit, but simply because it pleased the Lord to do so. We we know that God's choice isn't made on merit because the Apostle Paul tells us. He says this choice, it was actually made before we even existed. Before we had the opportunity to do anything worthy or unworthy of choosing or exclusion. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. All right, this is getting deep. Maybe it's getting scary or uncomfortable for some of you. 
talking about those God has chosen. You just heard me use the P word, predestined. Let me throw one more at you. Y'all, this one gives some people the heebie-jeebies. The group that he is praying for, the group that he specifically did his revealing to, it's the elect. Those whom God has elected to be his own. When Jesus is describing what's going to happen in the last days when he appears again, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 30, he says, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, for some of you, died in the wool Presbyterians. This is nothing new. This old hat. Come on, get on with it. But for others of you, this causes you major heartburn. And I get that. Right or wrong, I consciously limit how often I pointedly talk about this. How often I use triggering words like chosen and predestined and the elect. Not because I'm ashamed of it, not because I'm embarrassed by it, but because I do know how easily it can be misunderstood. I know that people can quickly shut down when they hear these words and either they can't or they won't listen to the full explanation from Scripture. They won't They won't hear about their plausibility. But if we are to have a biblical soteriology, that that theology of our salvation, understanding how salvation works, if we are to have one that is biblical, it begins and it ends with God's sovereign control. From A to Z. And we've already seen this in this gospel. It's abundantly clear in chapter 6 how sovereignly in control God is of salvation. Let me give you four quick references all out of chapter 6. You can jot them down and look them up later. To jog your memory a bit. And and I didn't push this that hard when we were back in chapter 6. But maybe... As it's lingered a bit and had some time for it to settle and for the Spirit to to use it. Chapter 6, verse 37. All the Father gives me shall come to me. And so there again, we see that giving language. The Father is giving a group of people to the Son. And we see the effectiveness of it. They all come to him. Every last one. Chapter 6, verse 39. Of all he has given me, Jesus says, I will lose none. And we see that reflected here in this prayer. He's he's kept them. He's asking the Father to continue to keep them in his absence. Things that we'll get into in more detail next week. 
And we're going to come back to that idea in 39 about him losing none. We're going to come back there in just a second. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 44. No one comes to me, Jesus says, unless he is drawn by the Father. So we've got the language of the Father giving the elect to the Son. We've also got the language of the Father drawing the elect to the Son. One last one in verse 65, chapter 6. No one can come to me unless it is granted him from the Father. Given, drawn, granted. Right? Unmistakably, we see who's in control here. And, and admittedly, it's hard to swallow. The very next verse after that last one, that was, that was 665. Chapter 6, verse 66 says, Many turned away. Many found this too hard to believe, too hard to swallow. It's tough. And some walked away from Jesus because of it. Now let's go back to 639 where Jesus says, I will lose none of all the Father gives me. I think Jesus, knowing that he said that, knowing that he made that bold claim, is why we get verse 12 in today's passage in chapter 17. Why, when he's praying, he says... While I was with them, that is, in the world with the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you give me. I have guarded them, and not one has been lost. Just like verse 39 in chapter 6 says. Not one has been lost. Well, except for Judas. Except for the son of destruction. So now is... Jesus wore just like ivory soap, and it's 99.44% effective? No. Jesus' word choice here is telling. He could have, well, he could have called Judas by name. He doesn't call Judas by name. He could have even said, the one who betrays me. But instead, he calls them the son, he calls him the son of Destruction. Some of your translations have that really great word, perdition. He's the son of perdition. He's destruction's son. That's who he belongs to. He doesn't belong to God's people. He doesn't belong to the elect. That's not how he's known. This also isn't some surprise development. This isn't an oops, I didn't see that coming. Jesus says, no, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. Probably he has Psalm 41 in mind. Right? Psalm of David, where David was led and inspired by the Spirit of God to write down and recount his own experience of being betrayed that foreshadows the experience of Jesus. Uh, Psalm 41, verse 9 says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. All, every single one of the specific group of people given to Jesus from the Father, all of them Jesus has kept, Jesus has guarded. That Judas is listed here as an exception to that keeping and to that guarding doesn't mean Jesus failed. It means Judas was not a part of God's people. He did not belong to the Father in the first place, and therefore he was not given to the Son. 
Jesus completes all of his work for all of God's elect. He has revealed the Father to them. He has kept them. He has guarded them. He prays for them. And he is about to die for them. Yes, this too is included in Jesus' work. Not performed for the world at large, but for God's people specifically. Now go back to one of those first questions that I asked you. The third one, I think. What happens at the cross? What happens when Jesus dies? Does he make salvation possible or does he accomplish salvation? Now, there's a few different ways to think about this. Let's take that first option. Let's consider it, that that Jesus' death makes salvation a possibility. Um, I remember... I guess it was 10 or 15 years ago when the credit card companies were being so aggressive and they were sending out all of these pre-approved offers. Some were so aggressive, some went so far as to actually run your credit report, make an actual credit card with your name on it, assign an account number to you, mail it to you, and say, here it is. All you've got to do is call this 1-800 number and activate it. Is that how we are to understand the death of Jesus? He did his part. Now all we have to do is believe and we seal the deal. We activate that salvation. If that's the case, then Jesus' death on the cross could have been a catastrophic failure. I never called and activated any of those stupid credit card offers. Not a one. What if no one ever believed and activated what Jesus had made possible? How disastrous, how embarrassing for Almighty God to have planned such a disaster. If you read through the scriptures, does that even jive with who you see God to be in the scriptures? That he would put himself out there like that and say, oh, I hope this works. I think there's a better way to think about this. What was Jesus doing on the cross? What was happening to him? He was being punished for sin. Not his sin, but somebody's sin. He was suffering the wrath of God poured out for sin. He he paid a debt that he did not owe for whosoever sin it was. That Jesus was being punished. That he was enduring God's wrath. That he was paying a debt for that person, those people, whosoever sin that was. 
those people or that person would no longer have punishment to face. Jesus took it. They would no longer have wrath to bear. It was poured out on Jesus. They would no longer owe a debt because Jesus has paid it. And so it would therefore then be unjust of God to punish someone for whom Jesus was already punished. It would be unjust of him to require double payment of a debt. And and how can you even pour out wrath when it's already been poured out? When the cup of God's wrath is now empty because it's been poured out. No, Jesus wasn't merely making salvation possible. He was accomplishing it. So now the next question we have to consider is, if he did that for all, well then, we're universalists. Everybody gets saved. Right? If, he, if he suffered the punishment of the whole world's sins, if he endured the wrath of God on behalf of the whole world, if he paid the debt that the whole world owed, then everybody gets saved. But that doesn't seem to jive with all this unbelief swirling around us. right? So many in Jesus' day who didn't believe, who were hostile toward him, so many in our day, so many of our neighbors, our co-workers, even some of our family members. Some of them are just indifferent to Jesus. Some of them are hostile. Are they all somehow saved by Jesus' work on the cross regardless of their unbelief? Or is his work on the cross, like the rest of his work, intended and effective for the group of people that belong to the Father and the Father gave to the Son. Now I know that for some of you this raises tons and tons of questions. And you're going to wrestle to see how this lines up with the rest of Scripture, and you should. And... I I welcome your questions. I welcome your thoughts. I'd love to help you wrestle with this. Some of you are going to say, now wait a minute. I thought God loved the whole world. And not just a small group of people. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. And you're absolutely right. God does love the world. His his love is broad and it is wide for the world. He also loves deeply and specifically and in a way that is effective for salvation for his own people. And you need to wrestle through this. It's not easy. But you need to wrestle through this because on the other side of your wrestling are confidence and assurance and hope. If you find yourself this morning having received the message of the gospel and you're believing in the words of Jesus then your confidence is in what Jesus has accomplished, 
Not in what you do, not even in your believing. Because then you might have to say, well, I believe, but what if I don't believe strong enough? What if I have faith, but what if my faith is too weak? Now, it's not your faith that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. That's a, that's a big difference. It's his work, not ours. And it has tremendous implications for our living, for our resting in his protection, which we're going to look at more next week, uh, for knowing that we'll be sanctified, for our being sent into the world on mission. All of these demand that we have the assurance that knowing that Jesus' work on the cross didn't make something possible. He accomplished and secured his salvation for all that the Father has given to the Son. Let's pray. Father, I think about Paul and his words. As he'd finished summing up the gospel to the Romans at the end of 11, and he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways. Oh, Lord, we could never begin to do justice in a single sermon on a single Sunday to the depth and the riches of what's here. But Father, to the extent that this prayer that your son prayed, ultimately for us, to the extent that that prayer scratches the surface of some of these deep truths, Holy Spirit, would you take them and would you press them deeply into our hearts and into our minds? Would you cause the confidence and the assurance that they bring to bubble up inside of us? Lord, where there is confusion, where there is concern, Lord, allow the rest of your word to come to bear on that. Bring clarity, Holy Spirit. Do it in such a way that it points to the greatness of Jesus and His work. Do it in such a way that it enhances our understanding of Your glory and Your greatness, O God. Take Your Word. Seal it to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.